Perspectives, a Rome Foundation at Drossman Care podcast series. I'm your host, Johanna Ruddy. On this weekly series, Dr. Drossman and I are frequently joined by guests as we discuss disorders of gut-brain interaction, their diagnosis and treatment, and of course, patient-provider communication skills, trainings, and tips that are helpful for patients and doctors alike. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another question and answer session with Dr. Drossman and myself. We are joined by another great guest expert uh, this week, and that is Dr. Helen Burton-Murray. We are going to be talking with Dr. Murray today about two of her research interests and topics that she is doing a lot of work in and has published a lot on, and that is ARFID and rumination. So excited to get into this topic. Dr. Drossman, hello to you, and hello to you, Dr. Murray. How are you? Hi. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Hi, Helen. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm really excited about this particular session because um, I guess I first met you, Helen, maybe five years ago when you were thinking of writing an article on uh, rumination syndrome, and you were a student then, and your career has really exponentially risen because of all the publications on topics that are in vogue now. People are learning about it. So you were really on the ground floor and have played a pivotal role in, in setting up the knowledge about this. Um, Dr. Murray, Helen Burton Murray, is a director of GI Behavioral Health Program at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Center for Neurointestinal Health. Uh, so welcome, and uh, why do we begin? Um, let's start with ARFID. Uh, I know from um, a lot of people's experience, that's a new term in the DSM. It's a, it's a new category. We always talk about patients who have eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, but this is a little bit different and it may be more relevant for the for us in gastroenterology in terms of the patients we see as well as other medical fields. So let's start, what is the definition of ARFID? Yes, um, so just as you said, uh, ARFID is a bit different than more quote unquote traditional eating disorder presentations where individuals might be restricting their intake due to concerns about their body shape or weight. In ARFID, that's not true. Instead, in ARFID, um, there's a reduction in the frequency someone is eating, how much they're eating, or the types of foods that they're eating that leads to medical issues like weight loss or issues in their life, their ability to live their life in the way they want to, for example, being able to eat socially. The reasons why there's a reduction in food intake is not because of body image disturbance. Instead, it may be because of worry about physical symptoms that could result, worry about um, what may happen with the texture or the taste or the smell of food, or just an overall lack of interest in eating or feeling like eating has become a chore are some of the common presentations. And we have used other terms like, uh, well, cytophobia was a common old term of fear, uh, not eating because you fear you'll get symptoms. And maybe that's subsumed under that. Is that right? Yeah, it's, a, it's really interesting how um, terminology changes for different presentations over time. There's even um, true for emetophobia and trying to distinguish if someone has emetophobia, fear of vomiting, or has 
ARFID, where they might fear a physical symptom like vomiting due to eating. And there's certain, certainly overlap. I've seen many patients who have phobias of certain physical symptoms, and they've developed some avoidant restrictive eating with ARFID, where there are other patients where they don't have a phobia of a physical symptom, but they might have worry and concern about my, what might happen physically in relation to their eating. And how does it relate to orthorexia? What is that? Yeah. So again, I, I always think of things along the spectrum. So I, that um, restriction of food intake lies along a spectrum. And so the reasons one person may restrict food intake over another may depend on different cognitive factors or thoughts and emotional factors, how someone feels about their eating. And so I, I see ARFID along this spectrum due to one of those three presentations I mentioned the fear of physical symptoms, the lack of interest in eating or kind of the sensory features. And then another area on that spectrum is related to what you named as orthorexia or often referred to as orthorexia nervosa, where someone may have rigid rules around eating. For example, what foods are quote unquote bad or good, often driven by um, more rigid thoughts around health what is healthy versus not healthy and might lead to kind of problems in their life similar to where ARFID is and not living their life in the way they want to, but driven by a different reason, more of this health concern reason. Oh, you know, a a common clinical presentation or like in a GI practice or a medical practice. And I see a lot of patients who come in and, you know, they talk about abdominal pain when they eat and, they are coming in restricting gluten, uh, even though it may not be relevant, but there uh, may be an effort to try to understand and control their management. And they're a BMI of 16 or 17. And the GI doc or the primary care doc gets the sense, well, if we could just treat the pain, let's give them something, you know, uh, antispasmodic or something, they'll get better. But it doesn't go that way. And how can you help the clinician make that diagnosis and understand that it's different from the perception that I'm going to treat their symptom and then they'll be better and gain weight? Right. Because as you're suggesting, there can be multiple pathways which, with which the abdominal pain can be interacting with their weight status, their nutritional status, their eating habits. And so what we know is that if someone's at a reduced weight status, and that may not be, quote unquote, a low BMI or below an 18.5 BMI, it could be higher, but they've had significant weight loss, that that weight loss puts their body in a state that it's not going to be able to operate properly, either sensation-wise or motility-wise, how the muscles are contracting and relaxing in their GI tract. So what I often talk about with my colleagues as well as patients is, you know, the first thing that we need to do is help you work towards being able to tolerate increased amounts of food to support getting your nutritional status back to where it's operating more properly. And that could in and of itself have a feedback loop in helping with the GI sensations you're experiencing, perhaps help with any gut brain dysregulation that's occurred. So that's one area that that I talk about with them is that it actually could help um, with their GI symptoms in the longer term. Um, is there a way that the clinician can understand 
that they have often, not just, you know, symptoms that are keeping them from eating, so that they can understand the spectrum is larger and treatment is broader. Yes, I see what you're saying. Where the restriction may be above and beyond what might be expected for their physical symptoms. Right. Yeah. And so if um, any restriction of types of foods, amounts of food has led to significant medical consequences, such as weight loss, and the patient has having difficulty being able to gain back weight, that's an indication that likely ARFID is at play. Because we know many patients may restrict certain foods or they've had, they eat smaller, more frequent meals, and they're able to maintain their weight status. They might do so to modulate some GI symptoms they experience and it ends up being okay. But where it kind of falls into this line of ARFID is if there have been medical consequences or impairments in their life that are above and beyond what would be expected for that condition. Thank you. And so how do you treat this? Yeah. So the, the primary first line approach for ARFID generally is a behavioral treatment approach. Patients might work with a variety of different providers. Um, those might be psychologists, nurse practitioners, social workers, mental health counselors, psychiatrists, to work on making changes with their food intake that helps increase toleration of any physical symptoms that might be associated with food intake and get them back to a place where they have a variety of foods that are balanced in their diet and they're able to eat flexibly and being able to sustain eating an amount of food that helps support their nutrition is kind of the basic overall approach that we take. However, for a subset of patients, particularly those with disorders of gut-brain interaction, a behavioral treatment alone may not be enough. So like you mentioned, for a patient who might have chronic abdominal pain, that actually having both a behavioral approach as well as medication approaches in combination with their um, GI provider's recommendations may help set them up for the best success. Anecdotally, because we don't have data on this yet, I've seen that some patients may benefit from behavioral treatment alone, but then other patients having a medication like a neuromodulator on board to help maybe turn down the dial a little bit on how strong that their sensations are on the GI side, help them be able to make the behavioral changes in the treatment to increase their food intake. That's right. I think the combination works very well. I think that bringing up the idea of a behavioral intervention is important because I think the general tendency would say, well, I'll send them to a nutritionist or a dietitian. And that, that has some value, but not enough because we're dealing with attitudes and perceptions around eating, not that they're not getting the, the proper diet. Hey, Doug, can I ask a question to um, Dr. Murray? So we, we've talked about what it is and patients presenting with it. What about screening for the potential of it in patients? So if there are anxieties around eating in general, or like particularly in primary care where diet has been a first line treatment recommendation for so many patients with IBS, but then in particular patients that actually might lead to over-restriction and the development of RFID. So can you talk a little bit about screening protocol for that? Yes, definitely. And this is still something that's being studied, what the best screening protocol may be. 
but there are some tools we have right now that can be helpful at one, the outset before prescribing a dietary um, approach for someone's symptoms, screening at that point. And then two, regularly with your patients, especially patients who have been put on a dietary prescription, checking in on how they're doing eating status-wise. And so um, the first thing that doesn't require a survey at all or any sort of formal interview would just be doing a simple dietary recall with your patient to identify within the past week, within the past month, could you run me through an example day of eating, starting off with the time that you first ate and an example and going throughout the day, which gives the provider a starting point of the frequency with which the patient's eating, some just basic examples of amounts, maybe then to lead to other questions like, oh, I see that you're going a long time without eating, or oh, like it seems like you might be having trouble eating larger amounts at certain times. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? And have an open discussion. There are some screening survey instruments that exist, and we have some initial evidence that for ARFID, among a patient population with ARFID, that two brief screening tools can be successful in detecting ARFID. The first is the nine-item ARFID screen, and the second is a more traditional eating disorder measure just to use in combination called the eating disorder examination questionnaire. And there's an eight item version of that. So just nine and eight items that can be used. Is there, are there any other uh, predisposing or dynamic features that lead someone to be more vulnerable to get orphan in their early life history? Anything like that that you could mention? I wish we had that data, and I hope that people are starting to do this work so that we can um, lead to approaches that we can uh, have data-informed prevention of ARFID. And so I, I think anecdotally, um, we do have some clinical experience just in our center in that patients who may present with a little bit more worry about their GI symptoms um, just initially, even without prompting, those patients might be ones who have already even started dietary elimination approaches on their own when it hasn't been prescribed by a physician or other provider. And so those patients may be ones who are looking and for dietary approaches and very worried about their symptoms, understandably, but might have gotten caught in a trap of trying to connect food intake with their symptoms and that being the cause and may put them on a road um, to having more eating-related problems later. Yeah, there's an old term called effort after meaning. A mm -hmm. patient uh, gets their symptom and they, they, they feel better getting some cognitive understanding of what's going on. They say, maybe it's the fried chicken I had last night. I'll stop right. that. And then it just mounts and mounts and mounts. Right. Um, all right, very good. Let's, let's move on to rumination. Another important topic because I can tell you it's around and people don't recognize it. How many patients come to the gastroenterologist and say, well, I have GERD or I have reflux and it never goes beyond that and they're being treated for that. But rumination is something very different. It goes back to the Middle Ages when it was first reported. Um, tell me, what is rumination? How do you diagnose it? Uh, what should we be aware of? Happy to. And I feel like you're 
an expert in this area too. And you've even created videos that I've watched. So you could probably be answering these questions, but happy to do so. Um, so uh, rumination syndrome is a disorder of gut-brain interaction. It's also classified, interestingly, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders as a feeding and eating disorder. And in there, it's called rumination disorder. But the presentation is the same. Um, and so the presentation involves a repeated effortless regurgitation of material, usually in response to food intake. That leads to rechewing and spitting out, spitting out or swallowing um, the material. And um, patients with rumination syndrome, as you said, often go for long periods of time without getting detected or proper diagnosis or given treatment approaches, which is unfortunate. I think um, on average, some reports have set up to 15 years before finally getting an approach that helps them. Um, so it's a condition that definitely needs some more recognition, as you mentioned. Um, how, let's talk a little bit about treatment, because I think you are very much involved with that as well. How do you treat ruminations? Mm -hmm. Do we just put them on antacids or PPIs or surgery or what? <laughs> so I think, um, as you're suggesting, with PPIs, that, that, that question often comes up because many patients may present describing their symptoms as reflux or perhaps the provider recognizing the symptoms as possibly reflux related and then may prescribe a PPI, which for patients with rumination, those have not shown to be effective for their regurgitation symptoms. And right. then, because um, the rumination occurs before acid takes over in the stomach. They're bringing up uh, in the first 30 minutes or so. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it's even while eating for some patients. Um, and so um, the, the treatment approach that we typically use is between two sessions and eight sessions, each session being about 30 to 60 minutes with a provider learning techniques to over time decrease the frequency of regurgitations. And it's a behavioral treatment, but not all behavioral treatments are created equal. So what I described earlier for ARFID, this type of treatment for rumination is much different in that patients are gaining awareness of when their regurgitations are occurring. So for example, do they occur more frequently after one meal over another? Are there any other things that regurgitations may relate to? I've worked with plenty of patients where regurgitations may have come on after starting physical activity or changing from a sitting to standing position. And then learning techniques um, to try to prevent regurgitations from occurring. And the most common technique that's been described and used in the literature is called diaphragmatic breathing, where patients engage um, their diaphragm, a muscle that sits on top of the stomach, to bring air into their abdominal area rather just into their chest area. And that action, the mechanism or the way we think it works is that it relaxes the wall of the abdomen. So in rumination, it's believed that contraction of the muscles in the abdomen have become something that's a, a habit that their body has learned in response to food intake. And so by using this breathing and relaxing the abdominal wall, in response to eating, 
patients can learn um, a strategy that changes how their body is reacting to food intake. And so then over time leads to a reduction in regurgitations. Thanks. And for the clinician, in terms of making the diagnosis, this is not GERD because there's food coming up as mouthfuls that comes up and goes back down or out. And it's not vomiting. There's no retching. There's no nausea most of the time. It's the effortless bringing up of mouthfuls of food and then dealing with it in one way or another. Uh, any last minute thoughts, Helen? Anything else you would like to mention for our audience? No, I think we covered some good topics. Thanks for having me. And, and this is really good for patients and clinicians. Um, you can be self-aware. You can learn that you have this or not. Uh, okay. Well, thanks very much, Johanna. Any other yeah. thoughts? No, that was wonderful. Um, we will link some of Dr. Murray's most recent articles on rumination and ARFID that you can refer to for additional resources, as well as the link to a very well-loved and well-used um, video showing how to effectively use that diaphragmatic breathing that Dr. Murray mentioned um, by one of our colleagues, Dr. Megan Real. So we'll have all of those linked for you in this video. So look for those. If you have any questions for Dr. Murray, please let us know. We'll pass those along and get those answers for you as usual. Until next time, everyone, have a great rest of your day, a good weekend, and we'll see you real soon. Bye now. Take care. Bye. Foundation Drossman Care podcast series. Find more helpful tips, downloadable resources, videos, and more on our website at therumfoundation.org. Look under the resource tab for our patient Q&A videos, gut feelings blog, articles, and more. Have you purchased your copy of Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction and Patient-Provider Relationship book yet? Be sure to find that on the Rome Foundation website and place your order or find us on Amazon as well. We look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Gut Feelings. This has been your host, Johanna Ruddy.